Well, considering the location uh, that we find ourselves in here in East Belfast, I felt it, I felt it was fitting to begin with C.S. Lewis, who I'm sure you've heard a quote here uh, a number of times before. But Lewis famously described his conversion and his experience of Christianity in general as being surprised by joy. And if you were to do a word search just on the concept of joy in the Bible, it, it would come up regularly. I mean, it is not hiding. It is there for all to see in the scriptures from very early on. Right, the whole storyline of the Bible is filled with constant references to joy. And a question, therefore, really lends itself to that reality, and that is, well, why? Why is joy so important? for the people of God. I mean, when, when Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, we would begin to try to think that quite early on in the fruit of the Spirit that he need to list is, you know, seriousness, you know, soberness, you know. But actually, second on that list after love is, is joy. Why? And the biblical answer is quite astounding, and this is the biblical answer. The biblical answer is that the joy of the Christian the joy of the Christian is actually a manifestation that God himself has in himself that he pours into his people. That's, that's the big answer. And you don't have to look too hard in the Bible to see this come up time and time again. So in John 15, as Jesus is teaching his disciples, he gives one of the reasons why he's speaking his words to them. He says, the reason why I say these things to you, and, and listen to the personal pronoun, that my joy may be in you. My joy may be in you. Or Luke chapter 2, when the gospel announcement is given to the shepherds on the hillside by the angels, they come in the assembly of the shepherds, we bring you good news of great joy. Or Paul in 1 Timothy, when he writes about the gospel and his calling to the gospel ministry, and he he uses this really interesting phrase. He refers to the glory, the glorious gospel of the blessed gods. I don't know if you know this, not Greek word for blessed. It could also be translated happy. The glorious gospel of the happy gods. And the text that we are considering this morning actually reveals to us something of the joy of this God. In the text this morning that we're considering, Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son, shows and demonstrates this joy. But he does more than that. Because as he demonstrates this joy, he looks to his disciples and he wants them to get caught up into this, to realize their privileged position of experiencing this very joy that he has himself. And so if you really want to put a title on the sermon, I want us to consider this morning the joyful God and his blessed people. The joyful God and his blessed people. Now let's get a bit of lay of the land to work out where we are at the minute in the text. Just to get a bit of context, you will notice that verse 21 begins with this phrase, in that same hour. What Jesus is doing in verse 21 is he's, he is spontaneously reacting to something that has just taken place. And up until this verse, verse 20 verses of Luke 10, there's been a mission, okay? In, in the beginning of Luke 10, Jesus sends out, set, depending on what the 
manuscript is 70 or 72. There's theological reasons for each number. That's not important. I take it to mean 72 because it's reflective of the 72 known nations that are in the world at the time the biblical authors borrowing from Genesis 10. But Jesus sends out 72 on what in our vernacular it's called a short-term missions trip, right? Everyone loves a short-term missions trip. And like a short-term missions trip, the 72 come back really excited. Because it's always a lot more exciting than our local churches, isn't it, when you go to short-term missions trip? You tend to see things and hear things that you don't often see or hear on a regular basis. And the 72 come back, and they are in awe at what they've seen and witnessed. The big thing that they're excited about is simply this. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. So Jesus has empowered them to go out. They've proclaimed the kingdom. They've demonstrated the kingdom. And as they come back, they are in awe at what they've seen. But Jesus cautions them in verse 20. And what he cautions them against is what we could call misplaced joy. Jesus does not want them to take joy in what they have done for God. He wants them to take joy in what he has done for them. And that is a, I mean, that is a sermon in of itself. How easy it is as the people of God to take joy and satisfaction in our accomplishments. Because I don't know about you, but any accomplishments that I feel I tend to do, it tends to be in a graph where it's up and down. Some weeks feel more productive than others. Some weeks I feel I'm on top of the demons, other weeks the demons seem to be giving me a rough hand. You get the picture. And if we were to take joy in our accomplishments, that would be a constant up and down. But this is where Jesus wants them to take joy. Do not take joy in that. Take joy that your names are written in heaven. That if we were actually a people framed by grace and not by our efforts, there's something else that feels this joy altogether differently. And it is in response to that that Jesus now expresses his own joy. So there's three headings I want to use very simply to go through these verses. It begins with expression, it moves on to the explanation, and then there's an encouragement. Okay, expression, explanation. Encouragement. So let, let, let's begin first of all with the expression that Jesus shows in the first half of verse 21. In that same hour, he that is Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. And let's stop there for a minute and notice something very interesting about this joy. Jesus the Son rejoices in the Spirit as he addresses his Father. We actually see here that in the incarnate Son, we get a window and a reflection into the nature of this God. The intra-Trinitarian relationship, the, Father, the Son rejoices in the Father in the joy and the communion of the Spirit. And it says, the ESV translates it, I thank you. It could be translated, thank you. It could also be translated, I praise you. The Son takes great delight in the Father and he does so in the bond and in the unity of the Spirit. And, and so we have this, and we're going to see soon that the Father is also pouring in the Son. So to get a window in the incarnate Son is to see something of the dynamics of this God that Christianity has historically confessed. One true God who exists in three distinct co-equal persons, co-eternal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now there's something else we need to see about verse 21. Depending on what translation you will have, probably, hopefully, there's 
a little bit of consistency, but in one sense it shouldn't be. In verse 20, did you see that Jesus tells the disciples to rejoice that your names are written in heaven? You see that in verse 20. In verse 21, we read that Jesus himself rejoices. But the word in verse 21 is different than the word in verse 20. It's actually far more intense. One commentator says that rejoice is too colorless a translation. And one, one Greek lexical definition refers to it as meaning to jump or to leap with joy. The joy that Jesus has in verse 21 is the highest degree of joy. Let me put it this way. In verse 21, Jesus is ecstatic. He is jumping for joy. He is passionately joyful. Now this is the only place in the entire New Testament where Jesus is described as actively rejoicing in this way. Like, he does talk about him having joy, and it's not that Jesus is walking around, moping around, that's not the picture. But out of all the places, this little account of Jesus, in this moment in the Gospels, is the only one where Jesus is said to actively rejoice in this way. Why? What has got Jesus so ecstatic? What has got the God of the universe and the person of Jesus to unveil his happy heart to us. To open it up and to say, this is what gives me great joy. Well, we need to read on because now Jesus gives us an explanation. We've seen the expression of joy in the first half of verse 21, but we now need to allow Jesus to explain it to us in the, first, the latter half of verse 21 on into verse 22. As Jesus begins to address his Father now, he begins to praise his Father who through the Son, the Father doing this through the Son, is doing two major things in the Son's ministry. He is hiding things and he is revealing things. Now these are contrasts that more explicitly even in the Greek because they actually sound alike. They're, they're almost like rhyme in the Greek text. So there's, there's an explicit contrast. Father, you're hiding things and you're revealing these things. Well, what's he hiding and what's he revealing? What are these things? Remember, the immediate context is that Jesus is rejoicing in light of him telling the disciples to rejoice in the fact that their names are written in heaven. It's the, it's the gospel content. That's what he's rejoicing in. He is rejoicing and he is praising the Father for revealing the grace of the gospel to these disciples, to these um, individuals that he has called. To put it another way, let me phrase it this way. The disciples have salvation. Their names are written in heaven. But how did that come about? I mean, how does anyone become a Christian? How does anyone become a follower of Jesus? How does anyone become a child of God? Is it, is it that the really smart people get salvation? Or the really religious people? Or the really pious people? Or those that are trying really, really well? Well, look at the type of people that Jesus is explaining. He's hiding and revealing to he is hiding these things from the wise. He is hiding these things from the understanding. And in, I think in the wider context of Jesus' ministry, this refers to religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. But who's he revealing these things? To little children, the word refers to the smallest, tiniest of child. And we have this paradoxical nature of the gospel. That... that that salvation is not dependent upon human intuition, it's dependent upon divine revelation. And those that think they've got it don't. And those that are completely dependent like a child get it. In fact, 
in Luke chapter 3, if you turn back to Luke chapter 3 for a moment, just to show you how, how countercultural and subversive the nature of God's revelation tends to be. Luke begins his historical setting of the ministry of John the Baptist. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being patriarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Euteria and Trachonitis, and Lysinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. Now stop there, and that's, that's a lot of high rank people, isn't it? That's a lot of wise and intelligent people. That's a, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a class of people that you would think God would use. But what happens next? The word of the Lord, the revelation, comes to John in the wilderness. God overlooks all the high, powerful people of the day, and God speaks to a man in the wilderness. Jesus is letting us know that the salvation of the people of God is not dependent upon them, it is dependent upon him. What, what does this mean for you? This is what it very simply means for you. The moment you became a Christian, the moment the penny dropped, the moment that you knew that you needed to repent of your sin and come to Jesus and to believe his gospel promise to save you, you know what that was a result of? It was not a result of you smarting your way in, studying your way in. It was not a way of you working your way in. This is what it was a result of. The God of the universe gave divine revelation to your heart. He personally and he decisively revealed himself to you. So Paul, talking about his conversion in Galatians 1, has this beautiful phrase, speaking of God, says, when he, the God who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. If we are followers of Jesus, we believe nothing less than the necessity of revelation. That the God of the universe must himself speak directly into the souls of individuals for them to get anything. And that was our story. That was these guys' story. That's the story of every single person that ever comes to know Jesus. But friends, it gets better than this. Because we must get our heads around this. God does not do this reluctantly. Because do you see the little phrase that Jesus uses at the end of verse 21? Yes, Father... For such was your gracious will. The idea behind that sentence is that this is something the Father took personal joy to do. More literally, yes, Father, it was pleasing before you. So what gives God joy? What gives God joy? What gives God joy is revealing himself to sinners who don't deserve him. That's what gives God joy. God, God in his intertrinitarian being, the Father loves to reveal, the Son loves to be the revealer in the power and in the anointing of the Spirit. This God, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, facing inwards in their joy or satisfaction, love to face outward to a broken world full of people who are in rebellion to him and say, come to me. Come to me. That's what he did to you. And that, by the way, that's not what he just does at our conversion. That's what he loves to do is all the days of our lives. Because surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives. And in verse 22 now, Jesus expands on the dynamics of this to the, to the um, 72. Notice now, just as he's been pouring to his father in prayer, he is affirming that the father has been pouring all into him. All things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, 
For the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So in verse 22, Jesus reveals that he enjoys a personal, intimate, and exclusive relationship with the Father, as does the Father with him. No one knows, and the Greek word for know is experiential knowledge, okay? No one knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows the Son except the Father. But, as Jesus expands on the dynamics of this salvation, we need to see this. Because as Mike Reeves says, the Son shares all that is His. Follow the logic. No one knows the Father except the Son. And no one knows the Son except the Father, right? No one knows this. And, in other words, this exclusive bonded relationship Jesus now opens up to others. And to anyone to whom the Son chooses or wills to reveal. Now, what is Jesus getting at? Jesus is getting at this. Jesus reveals the Father to sinners, to you and I, in such a way that the revelation of the Father that we get is the same revelation that he has. He does not give a lesser experience. He wants us to know the Father as he knows the Father. And the Father wants us to know the Son in the same way that the Father knows the Son. That, that knowledge that spoke over at the Son's baptism when it says, You're my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. So Jesus does not save by proxy. He doesn't kind of throw out this thing called salvation where you kind of enjoy it with the sidelines. You're only playing in the baby pool and he gets to swim in the ocean. No, no, no. Jesus brings us in to the life of the Trinity. To be a follower of Jesus is to get caught up in the life of the triune God, to know the Father as the Son knows the Father, to know the Son as the Father knows the Son, in the joy and in the personal knowledge of the Spirit. What gives God joy? That his inter-Trinitarian life might be experienced in the soul of sinners, who, if he had not spoken to them, would remain completely and utterly ignorant. That's what gives God joy. In fact, and you know, being brought up on Sunday school, I, I don't know if it was a misunderstanding on my part or whether it was being misquoted. And two or both options are probably true. So in Luke 15, when Jesus tells the famous parables of the lost, right, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, there's a phrase that Jesus uses when he talks about there will be, often I've often heard it, there'll be joy among the angels over a sinner that repents. That's not what the text says. The text says there'll be joy before the angels over a sinner who repents. Now who's before the angels? God. There'll be joy before the angels. Not with it. Yes, the angels, we're going to see the angels in a few moments from another passage. But there's joy among the Godhead over a sinner who repents. Brothers and sisters, God does not save us reluctantly. Oh, all right. There you go. God saves us passionately. Remember that famous passage in Isaiah 9, speaking of the Son coming into the world? It's one of my favorite phrases in the scriptures. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And because he saves us passionately, you know what this also means? He does not regret his decision in saving you. So you know those moments where you get frustrated yourself? You know those moments where you're kicking yourself in the teeth? You know those moments when you think you get really angry at yourself, you get annoyed at yourself? That's not the heart of God towards you in Christ. God himself delights to save, delights to keep, and delights to sweep us up in his inter-trinitarian life, to know the Father as the Son knows the Father, to know the Son as the Father knows the Son. So 
Let's uh, move finally on to encouragement because Jesus wants his disciples to see what a privileged status they have, what a privileged status we have. He now turns to the disciples, which may be an indication that he takes the 12 out from among the 72, and he now says to them, the first word he says to them is blessed. Now remember, I said where I started the sermon, the Greek word for blessed can also be happy. God is joyful to reveal himself to you, so how should you be in response to that? Happy are you? Happy are you? And it's so ironic because Jesus speaks about how blessed our eyes are. I don't feel too blessed. I woke up with a sty in my eye this morning, the bottom left, uh, bottom left eye, and it just agitated the whole morning. So I don't particularly feel like a blessed eyes this morning. But Jesus says that your eyes and your ears are blessed because of what you've seen and what you've heard. Now, we, we need to understand something about this word blessed, okay? Just to burst the bubble of 21st century Western Christianity. Because, you know, especially if you use social media, hashtag blessed. You know. Give birth to a fourth son, hashtag blessed. Had dinner with family and friends tonight, haven't seen them in two years, hashtag blessed. Spotted a real bargain on the high street that ends tomorrow, <laughs> hashtag blessed. The word for blessed in ESV appears 112 times. Not once does it refer to physical blessings. Not once. And in fact, even the way Luke uses the word blessed, this is who Jesus says are blessed. Jesus says the poor are blessed because they hear the gospel. The hung, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed. Those that are weeping get blessed. Those that are hated because of him are blessed. Those who are not offended by Jesus are blessed. Luke 7, 23. Luke eleven twenty eight says that those who hear the word of God and keep it are blessed. This is how Paul would have used hashtag blessed. Just preached the gospel in the city and almost stoned to death. Hashtag blessed. A riot happened in the city after preaching the gospel. Hashtag blessed. Got shipwrecked in the way to Walter. Almost died. But Jesus is worth it. Hashtag blessed. So Jesus looks at me. Listen. Christians are not blessed because of what they have. Because of who they know. That's what Jesus is saying. Blessed are you. Not because of what you have, but because of who you know. You've seen something. You've revealed. God has revealed something of eternal worth to you. And because of that, you are blessed. And he lets them know that the reason why they're blessed is because there's a whole generation upon generation of those living under the old covenant who long to hear and see what you've seen and heard and have not subsequently done that. And as God has made the promise of the Old Covenant a reality in the New Testament through Jesus, as God has done that, God begins to smile. Now, what does Jesus really mean by this? Because I don't know about you, I look at some things in the Old Testament and think, they've probably got it better than I do. But let's word it a different way. Moses may have witnessed the plagues come upon Egypt. I'm sure, that would have been a pretty cool thing to witness, especially if you're in the winning team. Wasn't too good for Egypt. <laughs> but Moses gets to witness the plagues in Egypt. But this is what Moses also had to make sure. The sacrificial system was set up day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. Because the sacrificial system was not yet fulfilled. Or Isaiah may have seen the Lord high lifted up in Isaiah 6. Isaiah got to prophesy the suffering servant. But he did not get to live out of the realities of what that suffering servant may have completed. Or an ancient Israelite 
May have stood back in wonder when every now and then the Spirit of God fell upon a certain class of people. But under the new covenant, every single person who's a child of God, male, female, young, old, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, get to experience the permanent realities of the Spirit of God in our midst. And in case you're tempted to think, well, hold on a minute, Jesus is writing to the twelve here. Surely there's a certain aspect of uniqueness, and of course there is in many respects. But I want to now end on one more passage of scripture to correspond to this. Maybe Peter didn't forget these words that Jesus told him. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. At one stage you were used to people flicking the leaves. I was looking for the leaves of the windows, turning to the Bible. It's all it's over, isn't it? The Bible has come a big for now, and just let us know. But no, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. I just scroll uh, your way there. Listen to what Peter, follow along with me. Concerning this salvation, right, the these things of Luke's gospel, this gospel salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the subsequent glories. So we live in the age of the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, Peter is writing to these first generation Christians. You can almost say second as such. Because, or at least, in verses 8 and 9, we didn't read them, but in verses 8 and 9, Peter lets these believers know, you have not seen him, but are filled with joy and inexpressible and filled with glory. In other words, it does not matter if you're a Christian who got converted in the 60s AD, or you get converted today in 2022 AD, you're both in the same boat, you've never seen the Lord physically, you did not see the apostles do what they did, or at least, so... There, in some respects, even though there's a long historical gap between us and Peter's recipients, we're in the same boat. We didn't see Jesus in the flesh. And this is what he says, and this, this salvation that you have, the prophets longed, and I love the, the, the description of the angels. It, it means, that, that verb to look down means to bend or to stoop. You ever, um, what do we usually do when we, when we drive past like a, a car crashing the motorway? We're all over next some way. Kind of, that, that's what the angels, the angels are in perfect glory. You know what the angels are doing while in perfect glory? Um, God's before the angels rejoicing at sinners, re repenting. You know what the angels are doing? They're, they're trying to rubberneck, they're trying to study. What do these guys have that we don't? Angels aren't blood-bought, we are. There, there's, a, there's a passage in the book of Revelation, there's a section when all of heaven begin to praise the Lamb but the angels have to stop singing. They have to stop singing. The reason they have to stop singing is they cannot sing about being purchased by the blood of the Lamb that was slain. They long to look in. So you might look at an Old Testament prophet and say, they saw great things, but they're, they're jealous of what we have. They long, they better long to look into what we have. Angels, they see God and all, they, 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 they don't sin. They don't sin, which is an amazing thing, but one day we won't sin either, and they cannot get their head around the fact that we enjoy 
something of gospel wonder that is beyond their experience. So I don't know how you came into church this morning feeling that you're not all that, and you're not, but the grace of God's a beautiful thing, feeling that it's pointless, that you're fighting for joy. Would you go out of here this morning believing that the angels of God are jealous of what you possess? Let me end with a story. There was an old Puritan that had moved into a new parish, and he had actually moved into the parish that had been also occupied prior to him by another Puritan minister. And he moved in, and in the living room, the mantelpiece had been inscribed on the wall the three marks of Puritanism. Okay, there was sobriety, justice, and piety. Three things that really get us excited about. Sobriety, justice, and piety. And when he moved in and he saw these three inscriptions on the wall, it's good, good qualities of Puritanism. He hired a woodsmith to, have to, 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 to pencil in a fourth one underneath. And the fourth one he put underneath was laughter. Laughter. Joy. Because I want to tell you something. The greatest noise in Northern Ireland should not be on a Friday evening in the King's Bond Stadium. Should not be on a Saturday afternoon the Oval or Dollar King. <laughs> Should not be on a Saturday night at the SSC Arena. The greatest noise of joy that Northern Ireland should ever witness. Should not be a couple of weeks when the, the bands are playing in the foods. <laughs> that should not be the greatest sign of joy. The greatest sign of joy in Northern Ireland is when the people of God, gospel people, sing the glories of our God. That's the greatest noise Mother Mary should ever hear. Because this God of joy pours himself into his people and he looks at his people and says, happy are you. You get to hear things and see things that the prophets of old and even the angels in heaven long to inquire into. And one day, one day our experience of brokenness that often pushes against the joy that is rightfully ours in Christ, one day all that will be rid and joy will be our everlasting eternal experience but until that day I press on fight for that joy in your life and may God empower us to live like this as the people of God today may God bless you and I'm just going to hand it over now I suspect that it's a mark and